Um, we're trying to make it a little bit easier on you guys. Uh, that's not an out to make sure that uh, you don't have to share the gospel. We, are, we absolutely want you sharing the gospel uh, yourself. But uh, we can get people there and get them involved. So we'll have uh, Rev on campus on Monday nights, Tuesday nights at 8 o'clock. They'll still have a Bible study. Uh, we'll still have Bible small group Bible studies going on Wednesdays out in the county at uh, my place and at David's place. Um, Friday, Cooley is starting his men's you're pointing at me. Hey, look there. Your thing's not on there, Cooley. Friday. See, this isn't an announcement. Friday, Cooley will start having men's groups uh, as soon as the Behold Your God series is done. So that is for men. Sorry, women. That's just how it is. Men have issues. So um, anyway, so uh, on a horrible note um, and something that, that we would desperately want you guys to be praying about, for those of you who don't know, um, Caleb Higgerson, who is an associate pastor here for quite a while, led worship with us. Uh, he and his wife, Lish, were expecting, um, they actually were expecting, uh, they thought it would, they'd have their baby girl by the end of uh, August. Uh, this week, um, her, the, uh, the baby passed away. So uh, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, um, you know, Lish didn't feel any hiccups or any activity. They were worried, went to, to the uh, to the hospital and the baby's hard to stop beating. So she actually had to give birth. Um, I guess it would have been Wednesday evening, Thursday morning. Um, so be praying for them. This is obviously a, a gut wrenching, uh, a time for them. It's, it's a very difficult walk in their journey. Um, so the best thing we could do, uh, is just continue to pray for them. I spoke to Caleb yesterday. Um, and, you know, he, he's obviously really shaken up considering what's happened. Um, but at the same time, um, is still strong in the faith and, and appreciates any prayer that we could give. Uh, so let's, let's do that as, as a group uh, going forward, especially this week, as they try to get back to what normal life would be. Um, and, and going forward, and if you want to drop them a line, that's okay. Just... Put in there that, you know, no need to respond. Don't, don't burden them with feeling like they have to respond to everyone's questions. Just, you know, if you want to drop them a line and say, hey, we're praying for you, that, that's fine. But let's not burden them with, with, you know, 75 people saying, hey, what's going on? Um, so let's do that. Um, and again, um, for those of you that don't know Caleb and Lish, they've been here almost since the beginning, especially since the beginning of Chillicothe Street. Um, and we actually transitioned from skinny Caleb to fat Caleb, uh, which was fun. Uh, everyone that hangs out with me kind of gains weight. I don't really understand it. Um, but anyway, so he, he's been a huge uh, integral part of Revolution, helped out with some of the stuff we were doing on campus early on. So just continue to pray for them um, as they go through this. All right, we're going to take a few seconds here. Uh, I'm not going to tell a joke because I don't want to say something stupid. Um, so anyway, let's tell your neighbor, hey. What's up, Revolution? That sucked. Do it again. What's up, Revolution? That was Holly. That was incredible. All right. Yeah, welcome to the Revolution. The Revolution, in the words of Chris Beal. Not just Revolution, but the Revolution. Plural. What? The Revolutions. I'm sorry, I got it wrong. It always reminds me of like Jack Black from Orange County. You guys want to get naked and start the revolution where he says that? 
No one? Too old? Am I, am I too old to be, what, 23? Whatever. Um, all right, so this is our last week in Philippians. We're going to be wrapping up this ser- series that we started back in May. And I've had a blast with it, and I'm, I'm excited, though. I'm excited to start other things. And as you all know, or at least all you people sitting in the middle here know, school starts tomorrow. Are you guys excited? No, some half and half, whatever. All right, and in light of school starting, I got to say this. Um, you sinners better start inviting people to church. You bunch of pagans, I know you don't want to. Uh, whatever, maybe that was too harsh, whatever. I just seriously, just start telling your friends to come hang out with us, start conversations with them, be intentional um, about telling them about Jesus. Um, but what's cool, and one of the things that Ryan didn't say was with school starting, um, we're going to be beginning a new sermon series. Um, it's called, What Does the Bible Say? And we're going to address various topics. I'm going to take a stab at what's called topical preaching. And... Uh, We're going to be covering, like I said, various topics throughout the year, and we're going to be bouncing every three or four weeks between doing topical sermons on, you know, just kind of whatever is relevant at the time, and uh, the Gospel of Luke that we were going through last year. Um, But next week, we're going to be starting with the topic of marriage, so it's going to be pretty cool. Um, I've been married for like 30 days, so I'm an authority on the matter now, Uh, so I'm going to preach on it. But needless to say, I'm pretty geeked. I'm excited. I wait all summer for you guys. I don't really care about these people on the sides, but I wait all summer for you guys to come back home to Revolution because I miss you and I love you. I do care about you guys on the side. I love you all. Um, But anyway, um, but tonight we're going to be dealing uh, with arguably the most famous text in this entire letter that Paul wrote in Philippians. Philippians 4.13 I'm excited. This is an old favorite of Christian t-shirt companies and Christians who play sports in high school, uh, right? Like, yay sports. Like, I, I, was a, I was a band nerd, so maybe I'm a little bit jaded. It's the, uh, it's the famous verse, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, or I can do all things through the one who strengthens me. And Lord, help me. This text gets jacked out of context more than almost anything else in the Bible. Like, somehow it's become the Christian version of Just Do It by Nike. Like, that's what's happened. And just a little sidebar for you. If you guys ever see a a verse of the Bible printed on multiple t-shirts in different ways, it's probably being used out of context. Just throwing that out to you. Uh, Don't don't trust what you see on t-shirts. That's awful. Um, But it has... (laughs) I'm just going to ride this wave for a minute. It's always been funny to me to see kids playing baseball that have Philippians 4.13 on the wristbands, and then they strike out. <laughs> it's like, I can do all things through Christ except hit a ball, apparently. Like, I don't, I don't know what their problem is. <laughs> but, but what does that say about that verse? Right? Like, what does it say about that verse? Um, a Christian can do anything they set their mind to because Christ is going to enable them to do it. Um, what does it say about that verse whenever someone is, is claiming that verse and they're playing a sport and they suck at the sport? Unless the verse doesn't actually mean that. Unless the verse doesn't actually mean we can accomplish everything we try because we're Christians. Um, but but don't, don't misunderstand me. I actually had a friend. Um, he went home to be with Jesus um, whenever we were in high school. He was a really good dude. Uh, his name was Storm Bratchett. I don't know how many of you guys remember him. He was a really, really, really good dude. And he actually had this verse on his basketball shoelaces. And I never saw him play. I don't know how good he was. Uh, but, you know, love the guy. Um, you know, he, he's with Christ. I'm not bagging on him. Still not an excuse. Dude didn't know the verse within the context. But I don't want you guys to think that I'm, I'm attacking anyone that, that use, has been using that verse um, out of context. I'm not attacking anybody because it, I love that guy. And I love you guys, even though some of you guys use verses out of context a lot. Um, 
I'm just trying to offend you to see if you'll laugh, but it's not working. I'm actually offending you. Um, so, like, a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people mean well. Uh, they've just never been taught properly what a lot of things mean. So I'm actually excited that I get to do that this evening because this text has just huge implications on us, right? It's not just a cute saying for Christians to use. It is unfathomably deep. Um, and it's, it's primarily about contentment. Um, it's about where our mind should be and where we, how we should find peace in all situations and how Christ will give us strength to be able to cope with things no matter what we're going through, whether it's sickness or death or despair or depression or whatever it is. Um, so tonight we're going to see how we can approach both good times and hard times fearlessly and know that we're going to be taken care of by God. Um, and then we're going to see that this verse actually connects a few ideas um, within a paragraph, like this verse is not meant to just stand by itself like we tend to do with it. Um, so we're going to try to get inside Paul's head and find out how Jesus is our contentment um, because he is our everything. He is everything for us. Um, and then we're going to see, after we do that, we're going to see what our lives would look like um, when we can trust Christ enough to not look for peace in anything but him. And I think that we're going to see that our lives look a lot more like Christ whenever we rely on him completely. All right, so let's, we're going to check out Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. Hopefully we'll make it through the end. Um, we're going to go through it verse by verse. Um, so if you guys are new here, there are blue Bibles. No, there aren't. We, uh, we dropped the ball on that one today. Nix that. If you want a Bible, come find one of us. We'll get you a Bible. Um, yeah. This is all going. We're professionals here at Revolution. Um, All right, but Philippians 4.10, let's go, let's check out what Paul says. How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Real quick, we've done this a lot. Um, We're going to put this into context. Again, you sound like a broken record for a lot of you that have been here for this whole series. Paul's in a Roman prison right now. Um, He's on trial for the gospel. They're trying to figure out whether or not the... Christianity is going to be legal or illegal. It's kind of up in the air. They're figuring all that out. And what you guys need to know about a Roman jail is that there's no food for prisoners. There's no clothing. There's no anything. Everything that a prisoner has to live off of is supplied by other people. Right? And you also need to know that at this time, Paul is um, not only is he going through like a physically hard time, um, by having to rely on other people to provide for him, but he's going through an emotionally hard time. He has religious enemies in Rome, uh, these people called Judaizers that say, you know, you have to be circumcised and obey all these other rules in order to be a Christian, and Paul hates that. And because there are these Judaizers in Rome, there, there are Christians that are questioning Paul's authority. Um, groups of people hate Paul. And on top of all that, you know, Paul has to be missing his friends. He's in prison. Um, prison sucks. I've never been, uh, but I, I hear it's awful. Um, so he, Paul has to be missing his friends. And what else you need to know is that the Philippians absolutely love Paul. They love Paul. We've talked about that a lot here. Philippi was the first place that Paul went to um, whenever he first started his ministry. It was the first church he ever planted. He has a special relationship with him. They care about him. They love him a lot. And they know that he's in prison. Um, So what they did was they sent this dude named Epaphroditus, which is the coolest name in the world. Um, They sent this dude named Epaphroditus with some financial aid, some gifts, Um, to give to Paul and to minister to Paul, um, to pray with Paul, to study with Paul, just to be his friend and hang out with him um, and visit with him. So they send that. So what you need to know is is one of the reasons that Paul writes this letter is to thank the Philippians, right? So he says, it's good that you guys, like, I'm glad I rejoice in the Lord that you guys have revived your concern for me, all right? So Paul says that he praises God that the Philippians were able to show their concern for him but he says, like, not that I'm getting it twisted. Uh, I know that you haven't forgotten me 
or anything, but Paul is rejoicing that now they could finally help him and tangibly express their concern for him that he knew that they had all along. Um, But right off the rip, one of the questions that I asked whenever I read this was, why does Paul say, I praise the Lord that you've helped me? Right? Why does, why does Paul praise the Lord? Um, I mean, obviously, we're supposed to always give God praise, but what I mean is, like, why is Paul so excited? Like, why is Paul stoked that they would send him this gift? Um, you know, because his physical needs are met, because he's no longer hungry? Is that why? Because, like, if you're like me, if you go six hours, like, you're thinking, God, why are you making me deal with this famine? Um, right? So is Paul thanking God because he's no longer hungry, or, or what is it? Um, I want you to keep that question in your mind. Why is Paul thanking God for this? And we're going to address it towards the end. Um, But again, that's what I would mean. Like, that's what I would think that Paul meant. Um, And that's what I thought Paul meant at first, that that he was thanking God that his physical needs were met. But then Paul says this, and he absolutely flips the script. Verses 11 and 12, he says, Not that I was ever in need. For I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. So Paul says that he feels as though he needs nothing and that he has learned contentment in all situations, no matter what he has, if life's good or if life's hard. Um, Like he said, whether I'm starving or whether I have a lot of food or whether I'm in just ridiculous poverty or whether I'm rich, I, I... know how to be content. And if your initial thought is this, because this is me, because I'm a skeptic sometimes, um, is Paul exaggerating here? Like, has Paul really been through the ringer? Has he really experienced both sides of life, where life sucks and where life is really good? Um, And if that's your question, let me take a minute to address that and tell you about what we know um, about Paul and about his various life situations, right? Pre-conversion Paul. Dude's rich, He's at least from a wealthy family, right? Uh, we have good reason to believe that Paul's family um, was a family of tent makers and that they were probably commissioned by the Roman government to make tents for the Roman army. Um, that's a lucrative business. Largest army, best army, best equipped army in the world, and you're going to make tents for them. Um, and we also know that Paul was very well educated, um, incredibly. He, he was literate. He could read and he could write, um, which was a rarity back then. So Paul was super smart. He's really good with philosophy. We can read the book of Acts. He's, he's up to date on, on Greco-Roman philosophy. So the dude's incredibly well educated. He's Jewish. Um, that goes without saying. And he's also a Roman citizen, probably because his family worked for the Roman government for so long, making tents that they gave him their citizenship. Um, and he was a Pharisee. So you combine all that together, and for those of you who don't know much about first century Jewish culture, Paul was like a rock star, right? And not like the crappy Nickelback kind, but he was like, yeah, like we love that guy. He was like up, up, up. Everyone loved Paul. Paul was well-respected in his community. This is pre-conversion Paul. And then something happens, and Paul becomes a Christian. And overnight, Paul is forsaken by his entire family. They're Jewish. Jews hate Christians at this time. Actually, Jews killed more Christians in the first century than Romans did. Jews hate Christians. That was actually Paul's job was to kill Christians. So immediately, all the people that he worked with, all of his friends, all of his family, they would want Paul dead now. Right? And the Christians that he was persecuting before he converted, they don't trust him. So he went from being the top of his social status to boom. He has no one. He has nothing. He has been forsaken by everyone around him. 
right? And then we can take a look at Paul's ministry. We see some good times in Paul's ministry. We see uh, he goes to Ephesus, and the church just blows up there. It gets huge, and there's tons of converts, and he's, he's well-loved in Philippi. Um, you know, he's staying with this rich woman in Philippi named Lydia's house. I'm sure he's well-fed, and it's a nice house, and he's, he's getting to sleep in a nice bed and things like that, and the church is just blowing up. He's planting church after church, and everything's going well. And then we also see in Paul's ministry, he says in one of his letters to the Corinthians, I've been beaten and jailed more times than I can count. Um, we see Paul's beaten where they think they beat him to death in the book of Acts, and they take him outside the city gates and leave him for dead, and he lives. Um, we see mobs following Paul around wherever he goes. Paul was in three shipwrecks. Three. That's insane, right? He almost died on water three times. He was hated by the community in general because of his faith in Christ, and ultimately, He was martyred. He was beheaded because he was a Christian. And here's what Paul says. He says, through all of that, he has learned to be content. Paul has learned to be at peace, right? He has learned to persevere. He has learned to cope through all of it and continue to push on. Now, what's kind of cool about this word contentment, right? I've learned how to be content. The way that the Philippians would have understood uh, the word content um, in the Greek would have been don't care. Detach yourself from the world. Um, and that's because there's this group of people called the Stoics. And uh, the Sto- it's where we get the word like Stoicism. It's where we get the, if someone's a Stoic person, they're stony and they're hard and they're emotionless. And I get called Stoic by autumn sometimes. Um, apparently no one thought that was funny. Cool, whatever. Um, and, and Stoicism is this philosophy that basically says, I've convinced myself that I don't need anyone or anything. That is contentment, to not need, right? To deny that I need. There's actually this Stoic thought that says, if you go home and there's no food, your response should be, I don't care. If you go home and your wife's dead, your response should be, I don't care. If your friend's dead, I don't care. If your house burns down, I don't care. And in detaching yourself and convincing yourself that it doesn't matter and you don't care, then you'll find peace. Then you'll find happiness. Then you'll find contentment. Right? And what's kind of cool about this Stoicism, or rather, it's not cool, it actually sucks. Um, there, there are bits of Stoic philosophy still in our culture. It's, it's carried over even today. Right? Get on social media. God help us for Facebook, please, Lord. Right? You can get on memes, and you can look at social media, and you can listen to music and watch movies, and you see all this crap. It's like, I don't need nobody, right? <laughs> which is a double negative, but because no one on Facebook can type properly. We all need to go take another English class. Um, <laughs> Right? Like, I don't need anybody. I don't need anything. Don't trust anyone but yourself. No one else matters but you, right? Just detach yourself. We see a lot of that kind of stuff um, in our culture from time to time. Um, I don't need anyone or anything. All I need is me. Nothing else matters. I'm just going to detach myself so that I can't get hurt, things like that. But that's just foolish. That's just foolishness. That's the kind of philosophy that, in my opinion, uh, forces us to deny our humanity. Because we do need things, right? We do have physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. We do. Like, if you don't eat, you'll die, right? That's a physical need. That's legit. You should care if you don't have food. Um, your emotional needs, right? We, were, we are creatures that are made in the image of a triune God, which means that we're meant to be in communion with people, right? We talk. We communicate. Um, we have this in it, like ingrained need to, to have people that are there for us. We have spiritual needs where we know inherently that a God exists, and we want to know who he is. You know, we have needs. And, and just throwing this out there to you, um, we desire things because we know that there are fulfillments to them. Um, 
Right? If you're hungry, you know there's food. We desire things because we know that there's a fulfillment to that desire. Right? So the answer isn't just to suppress our, our feelings of need or want and to lie to ourselves that we don't really need it. Because right? that's not what Paul's saying here. That's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying, I learned to be content because I really don't give a crap about that stuff. That's not what Paul's saying at all. Rather, Paul is telling us that we are to find the fulfillment to our needs in Jesus, which is why he says, Philippians 4.13, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. All right, so what's kind of cool is actually in context, Paul is saying that he has found Jesus to be his satisfaction for everything that he would ever need. He's not denying his needs. He says Christ is my satisfaction, right? His contentment, his ability to persevere, his ability to cope and to keep going whenever life sucks has been to trust Christ to be in control, to trust God to provide for his needs. And if he must suffer, and often God makes us suffer, he will still rely upon Christ to be enough for him. That's what Paul's saying here. Right? But, but I always have questions, right? How? How does, how does Paul do this? He says that he has learned contentment, right? That he actually says, I've learned the secret to living in all situations, whether I have nothing or I have everything. I've learned the secret, right? Um, and we all have to deal with stuff, right? Life sucks on many different levels for many different people. Like Ryan talked about um, our good friend Caleb, and my heart breaks for that dude. He, he's, he's right in the middle of, of just a living hell right now, um, People die around us. People get sick. Our grandparents get cancer. Our grandparents have surgery and aren't recovering well. Um, Bad things happen in our family. Divorce runs through uh, different parts of of our lives. And then we just, life sucks sometimes, right? So Paul says, I've learned the secret to be at peace. I've learned the secret to contentment. So I'm sitting over here going, all right, Paul, what's the freaking secret, right? (laughs) Like, please let us know, right? Because as much as life can suck, I think we'd all like to know what uh, what you know that I don't. He says, I've learned the secret that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. The secret is Christ. Right? The secret is knowing Christ intimately is what Paul's saying. Right? But secret doesn't mean underground or concealed necessarily. It, it means it's like the Greek connotation for the word that he uses for secret. It means to, to be initiated, um, to undergo a process of learning. Right? So, so my question naturally is, so what's been Paul's tutor? Right, what has initiated and taught Paul how to find contentment in Jesus? What's been the thing that taught Paul? Um, I think that there's two answers to this. One is objective, and we can all learn from it just like Paul did. Um, And the other one is subjective, and we're all going to learn it a little bit differently. Um, But the first thing that I think Paul learned uh, that, that was a tutor to Paul was Scripture. Scripture. Um, I'm going to get on my soapbox now like a, a good preacher should. Read your Bibles. <laughs> and I'm not saying that like a little PSA. The Bible tells us everything that we need to know. It's the, it's the living word of God. It actually transforms us whenever we understand who God is. The Bible tells us everything that we need to know about God, everything that we need to know about salvation, about pleasing God, uh, about how our desires are fulfilled, how to, how to acquire right desires. It tells us who God is, what he's done, how we're to live, the kind of attitudes that we're supposed to have whenever we face these difficult situations. Everything, everything that God said we need to know about him and about living, about finding true life while we're here and finding true life after we die, all that's found in scripture. So I, I can't, I can't harp on that enough. You have to read your Bible. This is where we learn this stuff, right? So, so naturally, our attitude and our understanding um, how sufficient that God is for us, understanding that 
um, is all found for is all found in Scripture. Um, we and Paul can can we can look at the Bible and we can see how God's faithful to His people. We can see how. Um, the attitude that David had, uh, King David, whenever he's being chased down by his friends and by his family, and he's in caves and he's hiding, and, and he's saying, you know, but, but God is so good to me. Um, even in the midst of going through that, we can see how God is always faithful to Israel, that no matter how, how bad things go, God says, I promise to restore, uh, I promise to be there. Um, uh, you know, I know that I've, that I've allowed you to go through this exile, but I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to give you the Messiah, Jesus. Right? He's always faithful to his people. He's always good to his people. We can see that for a fact. We can see the attitudes that we're supposed to have. So we and Paul um, can read things like this, Psalm 63, 1 through 5. Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. So here we we get this mindset that, that we're supposed to have, that God is better than anything. He's better than food, right? He's better than life. He's better than the very breath in our lungs. Understanding who he is, being in an intimate relationship with him where we can call him father, surpasses everything else that we can experience in this life, whether good or bad. And a lot of the times David, who wrote that, had to deal with a lot of bad. Knowing God surpasses everything. Having this intimacy with him surpasses it all. We can look at uh, Habakkuk. Uh, chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. And this is actually a prayer of Habakkuk. This dude, it's like a mini Job. If you only got time to read three chapters, read that book. Um, and, and it's like this prayer that he's saying, and he's been through the ringer, and he says, Even though the fig trees have no blossoms, and there are no grapes on the vine, even though the olive crop fails, and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields, and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the heights. All right, so even when everything is awful, we see this man's testimony. When there isn't even what we need to sustain life, our basic needs aren't even being met, that we can still rejoice in knowing God. We can still rejoice in the fact that our God is sovereign, uh, which means he is in control of all things that he's the one who brings things to pass and that this sovereign Lord is going to be our strength, that he has our back in the dark and the good times. You know, not to harp on something that I preached on a couple of weeks ago, but the Bible tells us repeatedly that in all things God is in control, that there's not one thing in all creation that God doesn't have to put his stamp of approval on to happen. And that in all the things that happen to us, whether we count them as good or bad, that God is actually working to make us more like Christ. And whenever we suffer, we learn contentment. We, we learn to be more like Christ. And we also, we see time and time and again in the Bible that God is good to his people. All right, so scripture being our tutor, what this has to do with all that, the reason why I wanted to use some of those examples is we learn these things. 
right? We read these things. We commit these things to memory. And I'm not talking about sword drills. I'm not talking about memorizing every single verse in the Bible. But we commit these concepts to our hearts so that we can hide them in our minds so that whenever life absolutely beats us down and we, we don't know what to do, we don't know, you know, how can I trust God in the middle of this, that we can know because we've read the attitude we're supposed to have that God is, in fact, all we need, that this word is true. We let scripture be our tutor so that we have truth to hold on to whenever life is awful. Because sometimes that's all you're going to have. And the second thing I think that, that, that initiated Paul, that was Paul's teacher, um, was experience. Experience initiated Paul and taught Paul. Um, again, for all the things that we said, I won't rehash them all again, but Paul has lived in good times and Paul has lived in awful times as a Christian. And yet we see time and time again that he says he has pushed into Christ through it all, that he finds Christ to be sufficient, that he finds his contentment in Jesus. Right? Jesus himself has shown Paul that he is better than all things. But again, how does that work? How does that work? Um, Paul has been taught how to trust. Paul has been taught how to trust God for all the things that he's went through. He's been taught to trust. Paul has known what the Bible says, and he's been forced by hard situations to trust what he knows Scripture says about God. He's been forced to trust that God will be sufficient to meet his emotional needs, to meet his physical needs. He's been forced to it. All right, and here's the thing. Um, we never trust anyone or anything until we are made to trust it. That's just how it is. You never really trust something unless you are forced to trust in it, right? Um, like Autumn, since we've gotten married, she knows my social security number. She knows my bank account number. She knows where I hide all the money, right? I have to trust this woman. <laughs> she could ruin me, <laughs> right? I have to trust her. She knows, where I, she knows everything. She knows all my personal stuff. I have to trust her now. Right? But until I gave her that information, I really didn't have to trust her with my money. Really didn't have to trust her on like a deep level. And I say money, if anyone knows me, I struggle with greed really bad. And don't act like you're better than me. You all sin too, right? Like, I guess that's one thing that I deal with. But I, I force myself to have to trust somebody else by telling her all of my stuff and putting her on my bank account. God help me. Um, I'm playing. Um, so consider this, right? So God wanting us to learn contentment, wanting us to learn to trust him, to find our peace in him and him only, for, for God to to make us get to a place where we can say what David and Habakkuk said, that your love is better than life, that I will rejoice in knowing you and you will be my sovereign strength whenever I don't even have my, my basic needs met. God wanting to teach us that so we can say that for ourselves. God is going to throw ups and downs at us to teach us to trust him that he is enough. That's how this works. That's how experience is a teacher. Now, I know that everyone in here, uh, and this is why this text was hard for me to preach on, everyone in here wants me to give them the five steps to finding contentment in Christ, right? Like those five-step sermons you hear. Uh, we don't do that um, at Rev because it just doesn't work that way most of the time. It just doesn't, especially now. We only find contentment when we trust God, and we only learn trust through hardships and uncertainty. So individually, we're all going to have to go through it in order for us to get to this place where we can say, I find my sufficiency in Christ. So I can't give you a magic bullet to teach you. 
right? I can't. Um, but what I can do is I can tell you some, about some of my experience with this truth. Um, and this isn't about me, but I'm just trying to show you how I can personally testify to this. Um, uh, when I was 19, Autumn cleared this with me. Uh, when, I was, when I was 19, um, I had just converted from atheism to Christianity. I was a baby Christian, um, didn't know a whole lot, um, didn't really trust God yet, just started even believing in him. Um, and I was dating this girl. And I thought, I genuinely thought, and I was 19, maybe it's foolish, uh, I, I thought, I'm going to marry this girl, right? We had talked about it like everyone does when they're fresh out of high school. We're going to get married soon. Uh, and she goes away to college and cheats on me with a dude that I went to high school with and broke me. Wallachek remembers this stuff. I'm just seeing you out there. Stephen remembers this. Broke me. I was on antidepressant medication. I wanted to kill myself. Um, I didn't want to live anymore. I didn't want to eat. I couldn't sleep. I was miserable day in and day out. And I remember I was sitting in my room and I, and I was reading my Bible and I was praying and I said, God, she's not a Christian. She's out doing whatever she wants to do. Um, I've been hurt and she's not paying for any of it and it doesn't matter. And all that I have is you and this Bible. And I meant it with some disdain. I was mad. And in that moment, this overwhelming question came over me and it says, is that not enough? You crave intimacy. I will be your intimacy. You want a relationship. I've given you a relationship to me through my son. You feel like no one loves you. I've displayed my love to you that while you were yet a sinner, I sent my son to die for you. I love you. Later on, a little bit more of a serious one, my, my, my dad died a couple of years ago. Uh, he was a heroin addict, and uh, he overdosed. And me and him were never tight. Um, and, and I don't mean any disrespect towards my, my stepdad, Mark's here, and I love that guy. He's my dad. Um, but Duke, that's what we called him, Duke. He was my biological father, and uh, he died. And as I'm, as I'm staring at him in his casket, um, I just become overwhelmed. I, I just think, he, he wasn't a Christian. He died under the wrath of God. He's facing hell right now, one. Two, he never knew me. He, he chose drugs and a life of sleeping around over me and my sister. I never knew this guy. I don't have a dad. I'm never going to have a dad. What am I going to do? How am I going to be a dad? And then again, this, this sense of, I'm your father. God said, I'll, I'll, I'm your father. I love you. I want you. I wanted you so much that I sent my son to die for you. I want a relationship with you. You feel like no one loves you? You feel like you don't have a father? I'll be your father. I am your father. I'm the father that no one else can be to you. I can attest to this truth. You just have to go through it sometimes. Christ will be sufficient for you, but you'll never learn sufficiency of Christ until you have to deal with it. I can attest to it in a couple of ways. Rick Clark's wife died last year, and I've talked to him, and I've said, dude, how are you doing it? And he says, God is so good to me. 
He has been so gracious to me through this. My, my friend, Pastor Gary Chafin, he had a child uh, die in the womb a few years back. And Gary will tell you this. How did you get through it? God was just so gracious and merciful. And he was everything that I needed in that moment. All of us, every Christian who has ever experienced pain can say this one thing and they'll all agree. Experiencing this contentment through darkness is completely supernatural. It doesn't make any sense, and you can't really explain it. Right? But, but consider this, for what I just told you, and what I just experientially shared with you, and what these men have shared with me, and that I've told you. Consider this. What is naturally in a man to have something awful happen to him, and yet he still says, God is so good to me, he is better than anything, and I am at peace with my situation. What is naturally in us? Nothing. For us to have that kind of contentment in Christ. That man that can say that to you and mean it, he must know something. He must know something concrete about the goodness of God. About the peace that God gives us. He must know of a way that God has shown his absolute glorious, gracious goodness to us. That's going to push him through to trust God more in the future whenever life beats him down. And that thing that all believers know is the grace of the gospel. That whatever situation that we currently find ourselves in, that at one point in time, our situation was worse than we could have ever imagined. That we had all rebelled against God. That we all stood under God's righteous damnation for our sin. That we deserved to suffer hell because we had rebelled against the king who had only ever showed us love. That's how desperate our situation once was. But that God chose to save us from his wrath by sending Christ. Because he loved us. Because he, he cared for us. Because he wanted us. And Christ took our penalty. He suffered the wrath that we deserved from God. He, he came to live the perfect life of obedience. The perfect righteousness. Uh, that, that was just contentment in God and obedience to God. That we couldn't. That we never will. Because we sin daily. We tend to find contentment in something else or search for it somewhere else. And then Christ gives us his righteousness to stand before God and be counted as good because Christ was good for us, if we'll believe. If we trust that he did that for us, that God has done this for us. That's the thing that all Christians know. That's the thing that pushes us through to trust God no matter what. The thing that pushes all believers to trust in God is that Jesus took our penalty, right? So that he could then give us contentment and peace with God. That we are no longer in enmity with God, but that we are now his friend. That he now calls us his children. That's what we trust. That's why we continue to push to find peace in God through everything. Right? We, we trust Jesus to be our salvation from the wrath of God. So we know that we can trust him to be everything else that we need. Everything else seems so small in comparison. That's the mentality that Paul had. That he could go through anything. That he could suffer anything. That he could be in poverty. That he could be in wealth. That he could have friends. He could have no friends. He could be healthy. He could be sick. He could do anything. He could be in the midst of anything and still be able to push on because he had Christ. And he trusted that Christ would be sufficient. Paul believed and trusted this so much that he said, if I live, I live for Christ. I will live trusting him. I will live telling people of the contentment and peace that I have found in Christ, of, of righteousness through Christ, of true joy in Christ. And if I die, if 
I suffer and die, I die trusting him. I die finding peace in him still. The secret of contentment, the secret of the contentment that we all truly yearn for is knowing Jesus, putting your faith in him. There is no other peace, right? We can search for it anywhere, and we do, we try. We search for it in sex, we search for it in relationships with people, thinking they're going to provide the intimacy or the gratification that we need. We search for it in money that we can just get comfortable enough that we'll find contentment there. We look for it in our job and our family and our social standing and our status. Some of us want to be famous and we think we'll be content whenever we just get this next thing, but you'll never find contentment in anything but Christ. You'll always feel like something is missing. And you can trust me again if you, if you trust my word at all. I've been there. I've been outside of Christ. I've tried it. And it all ends in you just wanting more and more. And nothing can fill you up. And I want you to know this, that Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin, right? But I also want you to know that in grace upon grace, Jesus died to give us the very thing that we desire. Peace. Christ died to give us unshakable peace and contentment. I think about it. We, we live in a time where there is more to do than ever before. And it still isn't enough for us. We are terminally bored. We're more selfish than ever. We're more depressed than ever. We have more and we still want more. Why is that? It's because our hearts are begging for something that the world can't give us. We crave something other, something not of this world, right? And many might not realize it, but they long for Christ. They long to know him. To quote one of the greatest theologians that ever lived, St. Augustine, he says, restless is our heart until it comes to rest in thee. We're searching for Jesus. So if you're here and you don't know Christ, I want you to find peace and contentment. I want you to be at peace with God, to know that, that he no longer, you're no longer under his wrath, but that he considers you his child now. If you don't know Christ, the Bible says believe. There's no prayer for me to tell you. There's no ritual. There's no nothing. It says believe that Jesus suffered what you deserved and rose from the dead three days later, and you owe God nothing that God gives you peace, that you'll find this peace and this contentment that you've longed for your entire life. But Christians, there's, there's some other things that are in this. And I was going to run through the, the next six or seven verses, but I'm, I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm just going to sum it up for you. Paul says this. Um, throughout the rest of this, verses uh, 14 through 20, Paul starts talking about, um, you've done so, like you've done well to share in my present difficulty. Um, you Christians, you guys, have, you guys have helped me, you Christians in Philippi. You've given me this gift, and God views it as a, as a, a sweet-smelling sacrifice, like Old Testament style, right? It pleases God that you've helped me. Um, why is that significant? All right, to sum it up, Paul says that he rejoices in the Lord that they gave him these gifts, but that he's content in Christ and that he wants them to be content in Christ as well. That's what a lot of this drives at. And then he still says that it's, it was good of them to give the gift. 
Why? Why is Paul rejoicing at the fact that they gave him this gift? I'm talking to Christians now. If you're not a Christian, ignore me. Paul rejoices that they gave him this gift because he can see that they're content in Christ. The Philippians were poor. You can read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, and you can see that the church in Philippi did not have much money, and yet they sent Paul more than they could afford to send him. He says, all my needs are met, and even more. I'm in abundance right now because of the gift that you've given me. And I rejoice in the Lord because you have found your contentment in Christ so much that you're willing to give what you can't even afford to give. And I think that this is significant for Christians to understand. If our contentment is really in Christ, then we're going to be willing to live open-handedly. We're going to be willing to live whatever I have isn't mine. Whatever I have doesn't make me. My money doesn't make me. My home doesn't make me. My time doesn't make me. My free time doesn't make me. My contentment's in Christ so I can give of myself just like Christ did. So why does Paul rejoice even though he feels like he needs nothing? Because he can see that they've acquired the same mind that he has. And that's what he wants us to do. I hope that we all can find our contentment in Christ more and more. Because the more peace we find in Christ, the more we can live a sacrificial life like Jesus did, like Paul did. So to sum this whole thing up, if you're here and you're a believer, now I, I pray and I earnestly, I implore you, trust Jesus to be everything that he promises you he'll be. Trust him to meet your needs. Trust him to be enough. Right? Anyone who has been a believer for a while can bear witness that he always makes good on his promises. He says he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He says, like, like consider the sparrow, right? They're cheap, they're worthless, and yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from my father knowing it. How much more are you worth than a bird? You're made in the image of God, and he sent his son to die for you. He loves you. He's near to you. He'll be everything that he promises to be. And anyone who's been a Christian for any amount of time that's ever been through anything can bear witness that he makes good on his promises. He will be your peace. He'll be everything. And know that you can trust him for yourself because he gave his life for yours. And if Christ is enough to satisfy God's wrath for you and satisfy your need for a savior, then aren't your emotional and physical needs or whatever you find yourself going through, aren't those much, just much simpler for him to be? Being your savior would have been the most difficult thing and yet it wasn't a problem for him, so of course he's gonna have our back on everything else. We've got to adopt this mindset that we're content in Christ and then we gotta run for it. We gotta trust him to be everything. That he is enough. That his gospel is enough. That he will provide for our needs. We need to take that mindset and then we need to run with it. We need to run with it into the East End. We need to run with it into the colleges, into our homes, into our workplaces. We need to run with it everywhere. And then because we find our identity and our contentment in Jesus, our peace in Jesus, then we lay down everything that we have in service to our God and King. If we'll adapt this mentality, then nothing, nothing, no circumstances, no financial need, no nothing, no, no death, no sickness, no pain, nothing, not even hell itself can stop us from telling the world about Christ. Nothing. 
people adopt this mentality, then we can truly say that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. Let's pray. Father, you are good to us. You are everything that we need. God, you promised us that you're near to us and that you'll be everything that we're looking for. And God, you are those things. You're our Father. You are intimacy. You're our portion. You're our strength. You're everything. Help us to come to that kind of knowledge. Help us to understand that. Help us to understand that so we can fearlessly live in service. Help us to understand that so that we can tell people of this great peace that we found. And God, I know that in, in me asking you to make us understand this and believe this and trust you, that I'm, I'm asking you to bring on the hardships. But God, bring on the hardships to your glory. Make us more like Christ, because even Christ was perfected in his suffering. Teach us humility. Teach us peace. Teach us contentment. Teach us to trust you. Because whenever we trust you, we won't fear anything. And we can do anything that brings you glory. Inspire us with your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.